good to be here this morning and thankful for uh, several people we have visiting. Um, I know holidays are coming up, so sometimes that means a lot of people are away, but uh, we have a pretty packed house, so that's good. And um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people traveling over this next week, so really I uh, wish uh, good travels for everyone that might be, especially going like out of state and things like that. Um, and there'll probably be more people here next week that'll be uh, just home visiting family, and it's a great time. Uh, it's interesting that like we don't have like official holidays that we uh, celebrate as as a church, but Thanksgiving is kind of one of those that I think we all kind of just accept as a really good thing that we all, I don't know, celebrate, even if it's not a true celebration, even even if you just don't actually say, well, I celebrate Thanksgiving. Okay, maybe you don't, but Thanksgiving is a great thing to do. Like, I mean, that, that's what we are supposed to be doing as a people, is people that give thanks to the Lord. Um, so this is just a great time of year for us to think about what we do have. Um, we spend a lot of the year thinking about what we don't have and thinking about what we wish we had. Let, let's, let's try and focus on what we do have this year, uh, this time of year. There's not one text uh, for, that I want you to turn to. We're going to be in several different texts. Although if you want to mark one place, you could go to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Um, this week and next Sunday, I want to talk about something that we, we don't talk a lot about as a church, and it's like things that maybe we grew up hearing, I'll, I'll talk about a lot, and that's just the Lord's church. We're going to talk about what church is the next two Sundays. Um, I'm not intending to do have a different approach. Uh, basically, what I want to do is I, I want to talk about how our church functions next Sunday. So we're going to talk about some of the ins and outs of what we do, what we don't do, things like that. But this week, what I really want to talk about is our church as a family. So this week is going to be our church as a family, what unites us, the bond that we have, uh, how we're supposed to be a family. Uh, and next week is going to be what we do as a family. Um, so the verse I have up here, Ephesians 1, if you want to turn to Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 says that he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but there's different images that we get when we think of what a church is, okay? Sometimes you think of a building. Uh, sometimes you think of a building with a steeple and all that kind of stuff, and, and you think that's church. Some people don't think of that. Some people think of just like the world, because for them, their concept of what church is is all-inclusive or something like that. Um, and some, some people actually think of like our physical body. Well, that probably is because there's multiple times in the New Testament that the way God speaks about the church is a body. It says that it is his body. It is Christ's body that fills all in all. So we're going to get to this verse in a second and break that down. But first, what I want to do, before we really get into the scriptures, I have some instructions uh, for, for you all. And I don't, I don't usually do this because I'm not like a, a teacher. That I'm like, all right, here's what you're going to do. But I'm going to ask you to do this. Before we get into scriptures, as we approach the, the concept and the teaching of what the church is, don't think about places you've worshipped in the past. We're not talking about places you've been in the past. There's not to be any sort of condemnation or like a sign-off on that was a good place. Don't think about places you've been in the past. That's not the point of this. Don't consider the fallout of what the scriptures say. See, that's sometimes what we, the trouble we get into with a lot of things we study. We sometimes think of the implications of what we study before we just understand what is God saying? What do the scriptures say? So what that means is don't think, well, how does this change things for us? Like, how does this change things for our group? Let's first just understand what does the scripture say? And then also don't think about, well, what about those other churches out there? Don't think about that, okay? 
Like you can get to that, but let that be something that is the next step in your mind as you understand what scriptures say. First, what does scripture say? So be open to changing your concept of church. Just be open to like, what is church? Be open to being challenged yourself by maybe your sense of responsibility to church. And, and specifically, if you're a member of this church, be open to be cha- being challenged to your responsibility to this group where you are a member. And also, maybe be open to being challenged in your expectations. Maybe you have had low expectations of what the church is to be. And, and maybe you need to have higher expectations. You need to expect more. And maybe, maybe your expectations of what church is is actually too high. And you need to lower those expectations. Um, and then as a collective, maybe we'll see at the end of this that we need to change. And what I mean by that is grow. I don't mean change as in like, let's, let's just shake things up. I, I mean, maybe we realize as we look at some of these things that we need to grow. So that doesn't mean that there's going to be some sort of massive shift as a group in order to do that. What that's going to mean is that if you think that you need to grow, you will instigate change in this group. You will help us grow by your conviction, by what we see in the next two sermons. This isn't going to be like all-inclusive of everything the Bible says about church, everything the New Testament says about the Lord's church. This is just church as a family, church as it functions. So the verse that I had up a second ago is Ephesians chapter 1, 22, 23. I thought this could be helpful because sometimes the he's and the hymns and everything, that can get kind of confusing. So if you look, he put all things under his feet. I think the he there is God. He put all things under his feet and gave him. So the his and the him is Christ. God gave all things, God, excuse me, God put all things under Christ's feet, gave Christ as head over all things to the church. The head just means authority, power, rule. So God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ as the authority and the ruler over all things to the church for the benefit and the good of the church, okay? God established Christ as the ruler of the church for our own benefit, for the church's own benefit, which is his body. Whenever you think of the body of Christ, unless we're talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection or something, when, when it's a figurative body and it's talking about the church, think of, that's just all of Christ's people. That's not one group. That's not just us. Like, we're, we're talking about just us because... We're the ones that are gathered here. But just think about all of Christ's people when you think of, the, of Christ's body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So it's interesting. I, I thought about that, and I thought, well, maybe that just means that Christ just fills us, and Christ is meant to fill the church. Then the more I thought about that, I was like, maybe that's not what that means. Maybe what that means is God gave Christ to be our ruler and, and is our, the ruler over all of Christ's people, so that Christ's church might display him fully. Like, we, we talk about this sometimes, about how Christ is in us. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. I think that God gave Christ as the ruler and gave the church as uh, all of Christ's people on earth so that Christ might be seen fully by people in this world. It, it's not by each individual only. The way people will see Christ is also through the collective body. Of believers. So I think that's a really great thing for us just to keep in mind and us to remember. So let's talk about the church as a family. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul addresses uh, the church in Corinth over a lot of problems they have. that They seem to be really messed up. 
um, in a lot of ways. They have disunity. They, they're allowing sin to be just open. Uh, by the way, we could be just as messed up. Uh, that's not just them. Um, Paul doesn't write them off. He actually has multiple letters to this church. One of the things he says to this church that, again, was struggling with unity is that all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. Christ can't be broken up. Christ can't be ununified. He is one. The body of Christ is meant to be one. It's meant to be unified. Okay? And if we have disunity in our group, then we are not representing Christ well. And that's one of the things that Paul tries to correct the Corinthians on. So this is what we're going to talk about. The church as a family. What I have is I have four, I guess, principles that are kind of base uh, and foundations for what we are to be as a family. And then I have four applications for us, challenges for us to say, hey, let's make sure we're doing this as a family, okay? So you got four base principles, four application points, and that's going to be it. So the first thing I want to talk about is that there's one church. That can be very triggering to some people, and I can acknowledge that. But maybe I don't mean this the way you think I mean this. I don't think that there's one church, as in there's only one good church out there that you can find, and you better go find it. What I actually mean by this is that just like it says that there's one body in Ephesians 4. So if you want to go to Ephesians 4, we're going to start in Ephesians 4. And this is going to be a lot of what we look at today. But we're just going to look at this, this one verse in Ephesians 4. As Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus, he says in verse 4, he's reminding them of their unity. And he just says, there is one body. Now, what did we already say the body is? In the letter to, to the Ephesians, Paul has already said that he gave Christ as head over the church, his body. Now, later on in Ephesians chapter 4, he says that there is one body. There, that means there is one church. But what he means by when he says this is not church at Ephesus, you are the one. I, I don't think that's what he's trying to say. I think he's just trying to remind them that there is one body of Christ. There is one church, but we think about that as all these different churches. And I just don't think that was a concept for them back then. So quickly, this isn't going to be on the slides, but I want to remind us of what church even means. I should have done that earlier, but I felt like this was kind of a good time to remind us of that. None of us are Greek scholars that I know of. Um, if you are, you can come tell me afterwards uh, that I'm wrong about some of this. But um, the word ekklesia or ecclesio, that's what church is in the Greek. And it comes from two different, it has two different root words. There's ek and then klesio. Uh, it's actually like called out, but it's reversed. So ek is out. And, uh, yeah, ek is out and klesio is called. So all those that are called out are called a church. But, you know, in, even in the New Testament, there are a lot of different assemblies, a lot of different churches that have nothing to do with religion and spirituality, have nothing to do with Christ. In the book of Acts, there's a group of silversmiths that get together, and they're a mob that are, like, really wanting to persecute Christians, and that group of people is called an assembly. The Greek word is ekklesia. That group is a church, and it just really shocks when you think about that, because it's like, that's not a church. That's an angry mob that's trying to kill people. But that's what a church is, and its root is just an assembly, a gathering of people. I think there's really two main things that you need to have a church. Uh, and, and I mean that in the broadest sense. I don't just mean a church is in a religious group of people. I mean a group of uh, uh, called out people. You have to have a physical gathering and you have to have a common purpose. Like that, those group of silversmiths that were mad 
They all came out and got in the town square, basically. They were all gathered in one place for one purpose, because they were mad, because they were angry, because their business was being hindered and being harmed by Christians. So you could have that in any context. You could have a, a, a church that gets together to cheer on Atlanta United, right? Now, there might be some people there that aren't cheering on the same team, but they're all there in the same place for the same purpose, right? To watch a soccer match, right? That's a church. That doesn't mean we should worship that. I'm just saying, like, that's a church. So there are many types of churches. When we talk about the Lord's body, like, there's two main things that we should think about. It is one group of people that gather together for a common purpose, to glorify God, because we are under the authority of Christ. So the, the difference with this is that this doesn't always mean that they have to be gathered in one place, right? Because the church is not, a, is not just a physical thing. It's also a very spiritual thing. It's also something that is not seen in one place at one time. It's all people of all time that are in Christ are part of this church. You might have heard this as broken down as the universal church and the local church. I used to roll my eyes at that and think, blah, blah, blah. And then the more I look in the New Testament, I'm like, oh, that kind of makes sense. Like, all believers of all time are part of the church, but they're not gathered in one place. So how can they be a church? Well, it's, it's this universal concept that goes beyond us because we're not God, but God can establish his church like that. But then what happens when we gather together in one place? Well, that, now that's a group of believers in one place for a common purpose. Now that's a church. That's his body. So this is how I broke it down uh, the best way I could figure out, and I know that there are better ways to do this, but I don't know that because I couldn't find it, but I know that some of you can probably find a better way. So let's just say, I, if anyone's name here is this, I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. You should feel honored, right? Um, but let's just say that these are four random individuals that are all connected to Christ. They're in Christ, okay? They believe in him. They accept that he is king and he is the Lord. They've been baptized into him. Well, now they are connected to Christ. They, they might not ever be around each other. May not, they might not ever be in the same room, in the same city. They might be living in different time periods, right? But they are in Christ. They are part of his body. They are part of his church. What happens if they are in the same area at the same time and everything? Well, they are now connected, and now that's a church, right? Now they are a, a group of Christians that are together. That is our concept of church, but this is just as much a church as this is. But they're just not in the same place, right? Now they're in the same place, same time, common purpose. They're connected to Christ. But we know there's a lot of churches out there. And there's a lot of churches we disagree with. There's a lot of churches we agree with, all that kind of stuff. Just try not to think about that. So what happens when you have all these other groups of people? Well, now you have this. And again, I don't know if there's actually a church named any of these things. I tried to come up with randos. But now you have this group of people that gather together as individuals at fill-in-the-blanks home, okay? Um, that'd be funny if that was actually the name of fill-in-the-blanks home. Now you have this Brookhaven church. Now you have a church off Main Street. Now you have a church in Marietta. You see how, like, prepositions, things like that can come and go, but, like, we know what this is. This is a group of Christians, again, have two main things in common that we can tell so far. They're going to gather in the same place, and they're going to gather for the same purpose, they're a group of people that are in Christ, gathering together to worship Christ, right? It's interesting, actually, in Corinthians, Paul has to not only correct them about, like, taking each other to court and all this other stuff, he has to correct them about waiting for another when they partake of the Lord's Supper. He's like, what are you doing? You've gathered, gathered at the same place at the same time 
but some of you are going ahead and eating and getting, getting your fill, and other people are coming and they're having nothing left. You're not sharing in communion like you should. They had lost sight of what the church is to be. Because they're like, well, these people should just be here earlier. That's, that's not what church is. Church isn't you meet my demands. Church is we gather here, we, we agree, we're going to meet here together at you know, a specific time because that's the way we work in America. But other places, not a very specific time, very loosey-goosey with things. But in general, we understand the time we're going to gather together, and we have one purpose. That's what we are supposed to be. So there is one church because we understand that each of these churches individually connected to Christ because these individuals are connected to Christ. They just happen to be together in one place. And they just happen to want to worship and honor God together. You might notice that there's no lines connecting these churches together. And I think the main reason for that is because as much as we see relationships forming between churches at times, like this church knows about the struggles of this church, so they pray for them. Or this church knows that Thessalonica, their faith and their labor of love is so exemplary that they're, they're just built, they're like building up other churches by their example. That happens. But apart from that, there doesn't seem to be a lot of connections between churches, really. There's Christians maybe knowing other Christians in other areas and things like that, but as far as the um, relationship, it, it, it just is kind of not as present as maybe we think it is sometimes. Um, I want to go to one other uh, scripture before we move on to the next point, and that's Acts chapter 2. I do want to notice something that I think is really important. Acts 2, if you want to know how someone can be in uh, the Lord's church and what that looks like, it, it's really, it really, we go to Acts 2 for that. Um, you have these group of people that are convicted of their sin. They say, what should we do? They repent. They uh, obviously are believers in Christ now, and they're baptized for forgiveness of sins. And then it says in verse 40, with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Um, again, this is something I remember hearing when I was younger, and like I just thought the, the logic like went over my head, and I was like, I don't even know what this guy's saying. So you might not even know what I'm saying. But when he says added, about the, added that day about 3,000 souls, added to what? Like that, that's what I remember hearing is like, what were they added to? Well, it seems they're added to the disciples, right? They're added to the group of believers. They're added to the church. Church is not mentioned there, but the idea, I think, is there. Then we see what flows from that is 42 through 47, and that looks like a church. That looks like a body. They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, and then you go down to 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Like, that's what a body is. At this point, there's over 3,000 people in Jerusalem that are now part of the Lord's church, right? And it's one. Even when they go other places, and even when they start establishing Christians other places, they are still one, even though they're not gathered in the same place. They're one because they are added to the Lord. They're in Christ. Okay. So that's a lot of background for what the church is and everything like that. But now let's go on to a couple other things. The rest of these foundational principles of, of what the church is all show what we are because what we are in Christ, okay? So I thought this was important to show that we have this connection to Christ. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, we are forgiven people that forgive. 
If you go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, I'll read that real quick. Paul says, put on then as God chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then verse 13, he says, bearing with one another, and if, any, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So we're forgiven people that also forgive. See, our connection to and why we forgive one another is because we have been forgiven. That is a core principle of who we are as a church. We are forgiven people that also forgive. The next two points are going to come from Romans 15. The first is that we live in harmony or unity or oneness, and we praise God. So Romans 15 verse 5 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, I want you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ. You see, like that, that group of people that guys gathers together to cheer on Atlanta United, they are not um, in harmony with Christ. That's not their, their base reason for their connection. It's a sporting event. It's whatever. That, that's what it is. But for us, it's supposed to be because of our connection to Christ. We have a lot of commonalities among our group, but we have a lot of differences. And none of those differences matter. And truly, none of those commonalities really matter that much. Because what matters is that we are in accord and in harmony with Christ. So therefore, now we are in harmony with one another. But he, then he says that together you may, so we remember our unity. And from that, just really overflows this praise to God. He says that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've just done. Brian led us in three really good songs. And, we, and with one voice, even though many voices, but the way God sees it and hears it is that's one voice. We are one just striving to praise and honor him and give glory to him. Then actually in the next verse in Romans 15, he says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So what we do is we welcome and accept like Christ does, okay? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We can't welcome people that are not in Christ, right? I mean, that doesn't mean that we're not welcoming and we're not nice, but as far as like who we say is part of our group, like, there's a reason that we have to consider, well, are you in Christ or not? It's because how can we say you're one of us when you're not one with Christ? And that's really hard. That's really difficult. But I think that, that the basis for our welcoming attitude and our acceptance of people in our group is because we believe that they are accepted by Christ. So if you have that down, then, hey, you're, you're with us. And that's great. So it's a beautiful thing here. If you think about who Christ welcomed in the Gospels, Welcome a lot of different people. He welcomed the wealthy and the poor. He welcomed the very religious and the spiritually weak, the ignorant, if you will. He welcomed the proud that humbled themselves and the humble that were given hope for exaltation. He called people to listen, to open their ears, open their hearts, be challenged. He called people to, to count the cost of following him, and then he tells people to follow him. Well, he calls us to submit to his authority, to change to trust that he's a good king that opens up his kingdom for all. So if we can agree on all those things, then hey, we, we need to be welcoming and accept those people that agree on those same things, right? Because we see that Christ did not, um, I guess he did not separate some people and say, you're not welcome because you don't have good enough clothes. You're not accepted because you, you're past. It, that, that just doesn't happen. 
What we do see is people that are in sin, that are not willing to lay that aside and follow him, well, they're not welcomed by him. Now, if, if the, at one point down the road, maybe, maybe they turn away and don't follow Jesus, if at one point down the road, think of that rich young ruler. If he had, if he had gone away sorrowful and then stopped and ran back after Christ, you think Jesus would say, you had your chance. I don't welcome you anymore. I don't think so. So we just need to welcome and we need to accept like we see Christ does. So the next four points are just going to be our church family. I want to talk a little bit more specifically about our group, uh, what we strive for. And in some, in some of these things, if it sounds like, you know what, I don't see that here, then um, I would ask you to, to tell me because this is what I see. And I would also ask that if you think, well, I don't think I contribute to that, then I would ask you to start doing that. Because um, I'm not saying any of these things as a judgment against anyone. But if you realize that, well, that's, that's not who I am. I don't do that. Well, I think these are four core principles that, that we need to be doing and practicing in our church. So this all comes from Ephesians 4. Next week's sermon is going to come from Ephesians 4, uh, the last half of, of this section. But the first uh, section that we're going to look at is, is 1 through 7. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the first thing I think we see is that love binds us together so we bear with one another. It says bearing with one another in love. I like the way the NLT says this. The NLT reads, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. I like that phrase. We make allowance for each other's faults. We bear with one another because of love. Right? And that's a beautiful thing. Like, you can really make me mad. And I can really make you mad. You know what still binds us together? Not because we're mad together, but because we understand love actually binds us together. So we, we get over that. That's, that stuff doesn't matter, right? Now, some things do matter, and, and it needs to be addressed because it's like, hey, if I need to forgive you, I need to forgive you. And if you need to forgive me, I need to take that to you so you can forgive me or whatever, or I forgive you. Um, whoever understands there's something that separates, it's the burden on that person to try to make that right. Because we bear with one, one another in love. So I don't care what you've done in the past. I just care where you are right now. I don't care how weird I think you are. That doesn't matter. We bear with one each other in love. There's some people that stand up here and say things. I'm like, I don't even know what they're talking about. But it doesn't matter. Uh, unless they're saying things I think are just really, really harmful or wrong. Okay, we, we, bear, with one another, we, we bear with one another in love. That's what we do. This is a core principle and a core thing about who we are to be. There can't be unity without this. It doesn't matter how much doctrine that we agree on or how much we think we have correct. We, we really miss the gospel and we, we miss our foundational unity when we miss this. That love binds us together so that we can bear with each other. We are to endure patiently with one another because we love the soul of that person. Not because we love what they, what they do, we love how they look or anything. We love each other and we'll continue to work together without bitterness and anger. I think, I think we try to do this at this church. 
actually, one of the funny things is some of the things we're going to talk about next week that are like the, the way we function, sometimes the way we do things is not because all of us agree that it is so clear in Scripture that this is how this must be done. Sometimes the reason we do some things is because I know the conscience of my brother or sister, and I love them. So you know what? I'm not going to say, I'm not going to push the envelope on something that doesn't matter. I'm not going to force their hand or say, no, you ought to just get on board, you know, shape up or ship out kind of thing, because I love them. Why would I do that? And why would I get up and, like, try and just really pester them with what I think is good with my opinion when I know their opinion, right? So one of the things that helps us to, to be guided in what we do as a church is actually this love. It's not just, it's not only what we see in the scripture as far as like, okay, do this, don't do that. Some of it's the character we're supposed to have and the way we treat one another. The second thing I think that we see here is the attitudes and foundations of faith are meant to unite us. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he says, with humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are three key attitudes that we need to have as a church. And I, I think we do. He says you need to have humility. Right? We, we aren't people that are gathered together to see who can top one another. We are people to see that come together to say, how can I exalt you? And by the way, in doing that, how, in serving one another, we exalt Christ. Because we show Christ in this church. We need to have gentleness. Gentleness is not something that is always glorified in our society. But when God looks at his church, one of the things that he sees, he wants to see, is gentle people. People that deal gently with one another. And then the last thing he says, there's patience. That's really hard. Patience is really difficult. Like, I can have patience with things in life, but patience with individuals can be really difficult. Like, maybe you haven't gotten the job that you want, and so you're being patient. And maybe you're just enduring. That's hard enough. But now imagine, like, you're having to be patient with someone else who just really infuriates you. That, that's just really hard. But those are the three things that, that Paul says are key for a church. I said something a, sec, a second ago about, like, doctrine. I think that too often we think that as long as we agree on doctrine and the foundations of faith, then the attitudes don't matter. Because we know why we're here. We're here because we believe these same things. And you know what happens to the worship of places like that? It, it, it just doesn't sound, in my ears at least, which I don't have God's ears, but it doesn't sound as wonderful, right? Because there's no humility. There's no gentleness. There's no patience with one another. Because they, they've started to lose their love. We talked about some in the Revelation class of the churches uh, that were in Asia. And I just wonder, like, some of those churches that were struggling to be unified, what would have been like to worship there? What have what what their singing sounded like? with the prayers of, I don't, it's just, it's hard to imagine it seeming to be something that glorifies God, really. But we're supposed to be people that, that do glorify God together. So we need these three qualities. We need these attitudes. But then what we also need is we need these foundations of faith. And he says these seven ones, okay? I'll, I'll go back a little bit. These seven ones. Um, says there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, okay? There's a few of these that I think that is, are easy to agree on. Um, 
I, I mean, I, you can see this differently, but I think there's a few that are pretty easy. Like, I think one Lord, it's kind of easy to, to agree on. I think one God and Father of all, it's kind of easy to agree on. Probably one hope is a little bit easier to agree on, and maybe one spirit. There's a few of these that are a little bit harder to agree on. Like, I think one body might be hard for some people to agree on. I think one faith is difficult for some people to agree on. Because the way we speak in our culture is that I have my faith, you have your faith. And then here's Paul saying there's one faith. And that's just kind of hard to wrestle with because we do have differences in what we believe at times. But foundationally, there's one faith. And we need to make sure that we understand that and we communicate that with one another. So uh, the foundations of faith are meant to unite us, but our attitudes are meant to unite us as well. Those seven ones, I, I think there's something really important that that adds to our group when we agree on these things. I think when we, when we agree that there's one body, our unity and our relationship to Jesus is strengthened. When we believe that there's one spirit, our unity in God being in us and being seen in us strengthens. There's more confidence there. When we agree that there's one Lord, our unity in Jesus being our authority and our ruler is strengthened. So that helps us be humble. When we agree that there's one faith, we actually prefer one another in beliefs that are trivial because we are strengthened and emboldened in the things that do unite us because we, we're like, yeah, we believe the same thing. Now, when we get into the weeds, sometimes we realize we don't agree on some things, but we are strengthened and we're confident about our unity because we know at the core we believe a lot of the same things. There's one baptism. When we believe that and we remember that, then our unity in the cleansing and the regeneration we have with the Spirit is strengthened. Also, our commitment to purity is strengthened as a collective. So there's, uh, there's two things that are really important, the attitudes and these doctrinal things, the foundations of faith. That's meant to unite us. That's not meant to divide us. Too often, they do divide us when they're meant to unite us. This is, th these are two things that are supposed to help us stand together. The last thing that I want to point out from Ephesians 4 is what he, when he says, make every effort to maintain unity and peace. Your translation might say, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I, I like the make every effort, because that is more clear to me. Eager sounds like, well, I'm eager, but I'm not, I don't really have to do it. <laughs> but then make every effort, that makes it seem like I, I got to do everything I have to do, everything in my power to make sure we are unified, make sure we are peaceful. That's what I have to do. We're to desire unity and do all we can to continue in it. We're to keep the unity that is already in existence because it comes from the calling with which we've been called. We need to be diligent to maintain this unity. I think we try to do this. I think we, we try the best we can. I think we do make every effort to maintain unity and peace. But unity is not just a concept. It's something that is seen in behavior. So if we don't if we aren't doing it, then we don't have it. A lack of unity in a marriage is very evident, so a lack of unity in a body of, of Christ will be very evident. If we have unity in Christ, then everyone will be able to see it and we'll be able to know it and take confidence in it. And I, I think that here we, we try our best to do that. Here are five things that, that I thought of that, that might be a way that we show we're making every effort to maintain unity. They're not going to be on the screen, sorry. Uh, the first one is just our 
drive to worship together should show that we're making every effort to maintain unity and peace, right? There's two times that we have established that we get together every week, Sunday and Thursday, Sunday from whatever time to whatever time, um, it kind of depends on how long the sermon goes, I guess, 9.30 to whatever time it is, and then Thursday night, 7.30 to 8.30, right? Those are the times we've agreed on. Why are we doing that? We're trying to make every effort to maintain unity and peace. But it's not just about that. Like, fellowship day in and day out. That, that, that is communication, but also actually going and being at things together. We have a lot of Bible studies that go on. Well, why do we have that? Well, we know it's good, and we know those are things that are helpful and build us up. But it's also to make every effort to maintain unity and peace. We break bread together. A lot of us did that last night at the Mass. Um, there will be people that do that again in a few weeks at the Carters. There will be pe- there's many things like that where we break bread together. You know, one of the breakings of the bread that is really important is our communion together. When we as a collective remember Christ's crucifixion, that's meant to really create unity and peace among us. We pray for each other and we pray together for one another. That's meant to make every effort to maintain unity. When we serve each other and we help meet each other's needs, then that's, that's meant to create unity, making every effort to be at peace. When you're a shoulder for someone to cry on, when you're a reliable source of loving correction, that's, that's showing you're making every effort to maintain unity and peace. This is what we're supposed to do. This is, this is hard. Make every effort. But when we have the principles and we have the attitude of humility and gentleness and patience, this actually is not that hard. So when I feel like this is hard, that's probably showing me that I'm not as humble as I need to be. When this is hard for me to maintain unity and peace with any of you, I'm not being patient like I need to be. I'm not being gentle. And I'm not remembering the love that unites us. That it's not just my love for you, it's actually my love for Christ and his love for me. When we remember those things, this actually becomes a lot easier. The last thing that I think we need to do as a church family, or I think we, we do as a church family, we need to continue to do, is actually from Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, he says, We strive together side by side. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. It's hard for families to stay together sometimes, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff that divides us. Um, so like, there, there was family reunions I would go to with my grandparents a lot. And my grandparents didn't like contaminate me with all the drama of everyone. But if I had known the stuff when I was younger, I'd be like, why are we around these people? This is terrible. Like, they did what? They're doing this? I mean, it, but, but there's a reason they didn't tell me all that when I was a kid. But then as I grew up, I was like, Uncle Phil, I don't want to say your name on, on, <laughs> on the recording, <laughs> but uh, Uncle so-and-so did what? <laughs> you know, why, why are we even like eating with this guy? This sounds terrible. You know, it felt like it's hard. But when you have a purpose, you strive side by side. You work together. You overlook some faults. Because you love. I mean, this is, this is really difficult to do sometimes. 
I think we do a good job of this. I think we, we do a good job of striving side by side, of locking arms and working together. But the thing that we're working for and our reason for doing that is not just because we're afraid of someone leaving or we're afraid of whatever, disappointing someone. It's actually because we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's got to be our thing. That's got to be the thing that we just say, let's lock arms, let's do this. Let's go. Let's share life together. That's going to be hard. I'm going to disappoint you. You're going to disappoint me. It's going to be hard for me to be humble at times. And you know what? I'm not going to say it's going to be hard for you, but I assume it will be hard for you. And it's going to be hard for you to love me because it's going to be hard for me to love you. And I just know that's how it is. But you know what unites us is the gospel. That's what brings us together. That's our basis for unity. So we strive together. We contend for it. We fight for it. That doesn't mean always we're on the street corner like shouting at people that they need to believe in Jesus. Sometimes contending for the faith is just working things out as a group so that we maintain our unity because that's what we see the church has in the Gospels. And it's just really hard. Without the Gospel, we're nothing more than a bunch of people that live individual lives that just happen to like to sit in these blue chairs together a couple times a week, sing some songs that some of us know, some of us don't know, but we think it sounds pretty, so it lifts our hearts up. And then we just open up a book and we try to read together and show our reading comprehension skills. Like, without the gospel, that's what we are. And that's nothing. That's just dumb. We're not joined by a last name. We're not joined by physical blood. We're joined by one name. That's Christ. And we're joined by his blood. And when we remember that we're striving for the gospel, that brings us together. It causes us to overlook so much stuff. And I think we try to do that. But anytime we're, we're struggling with that, anytime when I'm struggling with that, it's because I'm forgetting that I'm supposed to stand side by side with you. And you're supposed to stand side by side with me. We're supposed to lock arms. We're supposed to share. We're supposed to be patient and humble. We're supposed to pray together. We're supposed to love. We're a family that's joined by the blood of Jesus Christ. So he's our ruler, he's our king. And that means that we just submit to him. When we have that mentality then we truly are a church family, right? This is not us, obviously. But if we had an album, I hope we would all just, like, be gathered together, right? Instead of, like, the picture of our church family being what I see right here, although this is a beautiful sight, I think our church family should look like what our photo album should look like is our interactions day in and day out. It should look like going through hard times together, and it should look like really just glorifying God and just praising him for wonderful things we have together. This is what we're supposed to be. And if you see that you're not part of that, because you're not part of a church at all, or you, you don't even know if you're in Christ, you need to be in Christ. You need that. Like, I don't need you to see that you need that. You need that. You need to see your need for him. And if you're looking for a group of Christians to, to assemble with, to be one with, well, these are the things that we think we see in the Bible. And if you want to be part of that, then we can have that conversation. On the flip side, if you're already part of this group and you think, I don't agree with any of those things, or maybe you're like, I don't think I contribute to some of that. Well, if we went all the way back to the beginning of the slides, which I don't want to take the time to do, just remember that. Like, this might challenge us. It might challenge us to our very core. And that's good, because that's what Christ has invited us to, to be in a relationship with him and then be connected with other people that believe in him so that one day, when we are all gathered together, like it's, it's going to be reminiscent of what we've shared here on earth.
We're supposed to be sharing in unity that is a shadow of what's to come. And that's going to be beautiful. I hope these things are helpful. Um, if you're not in Christ, you need to be one with him. We want your unity to be with Christ, not just with us. Um, if you are one with Christ, but you're not, you're not really feeling one with a group, well, let's have a conversation about that. Because that can be really hard. And maybe that means that there's some sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. Maybe there's some pride. Maybe there's some impatience. And we can work through that. I hope these things have been helpful. We're going to have a song that is going to be a song of encouragement that Brian's going to lead us in. And then we'll have a prayer to wrap us up for this worship hour.